the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it is good to see you all and to see some familiar faces, some people coming back from time away this summer, and some uh, folks visiting family, uh, and some new faces. So welcome to Anglican Church of the Epiphany. Glad that you are here. Well, in the past few weeks, uh, we've been talking about faith and the readings from uh, the epistle to the Hebrews has given us lots of space uh, to think about the nature of faith, um, how it's given to us from God, not something that we conjure up ourselves, not something that we get by being intellectually convinced of the truth of who God is or something like that, but that faith is a gift from God. God grows it in us by his grace. So again, we can't grow that faith. God gives us grace and it grows our faith. And then that grace, that grown faith rather by grace, results in actions, right? That there's a consequence to being people of faith. And that's often seen in the things that we do, not just what we think or not that we just confess that we are people of faith, but it results in tangible actions. In other words, people ought to be able to, to see a believer, to see a Christian, and say, yeah, that's a person of faith. Well, now, today, we come to this reading from Hebrews, which is actually the last chapter of the epistle itself, and the author is leaving behind his or her kind of exegetical and eschatological concerns, which uh, they've been concerned about up until this point, and they turn their focus toward a series of moral commandments, a series of moral imperatives. In other words, where does the rubber meet the road for people of faith, right? In other words, what are these things that we are to do as Christians? And of course, we need to tread lightly here because we should not reduce the Christian faith to things that we do, though as Christians, we should be doing things again. Faith has consequences. It results in actions. But Mostly because as 21st century people, most of us, if not all of us, are doers. So I get up at least four days a week at six in the morning and I go for a run, and I've probably shared this with you before. For most of the year, it's the same route every day. I'm predictable in that regard. And at some point, as I'm out running the same route, right, I know where all the potholes are, I know, I know all the places where the road's been fixed, I know where the loud dogs are, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, at some point as I'm running, I start thinking about what do I have to do today, right? What needs to get done? So my mind is already moving beyond this monotony of just running and thinking about what do I have to do? And so most of us frame a lot of our lives as doing. So the weekend comes, and for those of us that are homeowners, often it's like, well, what do I need to do around the house? Or, wow, I've noticed the grass got away from me. I need to go cut the grass. I need to do that this weekend. I need to get to that. And I would even suggest that for those who aren't doers, in one sense, they're doers in another sense. Because even if you think, I have nothing to do today, I'm going to binge, right, a TV show. Like, well, you're doing something. You're deciding to do what I think would be something that's not great. But I mean, the point is, is like you, you are doing something. So we're doers. And so it's, it's easy to think that, well, here we are as Christians, doers. That's what we do. We do things. And we might also be a little hesitant to think about these kind of moral imperatives, right? These, these commandments that, that God gives us. And we think of something like the Apostle Paul writing to the Galatians. And he says, no more law. It's all about the spirit. It's all about the gospel, right? The law is behind us. We now live in light of the gospel. 
And then he says, now do these things, <laughs> right? And we're like, wait a second, Paul, I'm so confused. You were just talking about being done away with law, but then he gives a series of commands. So the New Testament does that. So we don't want to reduce our faith. Uh, we don't want to reduce ourselves even as people of faith to just doing things. But again, faith results in actions. And so the author of the Hebrews in the last chapter turns to six things, six moral imperatives, six things that we should be doing as people of faith. We're going to look at those six tonight. The first, verse one, let brotherly love continue. So the word there for brotherly love, Philadelphia, might also be able to be translated as kind of mutual love. The point there is that let brotherly love continue. It's suggesting that those whom we're close to and we love, we need to continue loving those people. So perhaps family, perhaps friends, right? Those in, in our parish life here at the church, but those who are closest to us that, that we're called to love. We need to continue loving those men and women. That's the first thing that the author of the Hebrews tells us to do, right? Now, most of those people we choose, right? I choose who I'm close to. I mean, my family I'm kind of obligated to, to be with no matter what, but, but I choose the people that I want to be close to. And I'm sure you do the same thing, that if I meet someone new and hang out with them, and I think, eh, eh, you know, it's okay if I don't hang out with that person ever again. That'd be all right. You know, like that's, you know, I mean, that's okay. We don't have to grow close to everyone we meet. But for those that we are close to, we need to love them. We need to have a mutual love for them, and Lord willing, they for us. So that's the first thing, love those who you're close to. But second, which happens to be in verse two, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. But see, the word there in English, hospitality in Greek is philozenos, love the stranger. So the, the passages here have a love those close to, you, close to you, but you also have to love the stranger. Well, who's the stranger? It's those who aren't known to us. It's the person that you pass in the park who might be going through the trash can, or it's literally the person down the street who you walk past, bike past, jog past, whatever past, and you know that they live down the street, but you've never taken the time to get to know them. They don't know you, you don't know them. Right, so we can't just love those who are closest to us, which I realize isn't always easy, Right, But we also have to love the stranger, those who aren't known to us. But in either case, this love is rooted ultimately in the great commandment, which we've already heard tonight because we start every Eucharist with, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and a great commandment. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So how do we love those close to us but also love those who are strangers? Well, it's not because we conjure up feelings towards these people and then label that feeling that we have as this thing called love and then show it to them. No, instead that we love God and we love God in response to the fact that he first loved us. And so we receive that love of God, particularly by way of the gift of his son, and thereby God loves us and we in response love him, but we just let that love of God go out of us to other people. Right? In other words, it's not about how do I feel about this person, whether that's someone close to me or a stranger. It's am I being available to let the love of God work through me? 
do I refract God's love to those whom I know and to those who I don't know? So again, it's not just about this sense that, well, love is something I feel towards people, and I really need to know someone before I can love them. Actually, no, you have to love strangers as well. And perhaps there's no greater example than that which is provided for us tonight in the gospel reading. So when you have a dinner or throw a dinner party or a banquet, as we're wont to do these days, right? I'm sure we're all in the business of throwing dinner parties. But uh, when you give a dinner or a banquet, the gospel says, you cannot just invite your friends or your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. I mean, my question would be, well, who else am I throwing the party for? Right? I mean, I, do you watch these home improvement shows? Right? My dad has been subjected to these, I think, because my mother watches them. And at one time I was visiting my family in Virginia, and my dad said, oh, this is also scripted. You know, like every time they walk into a kitchen, no matter how beautiful the kitchen is, this is insufficient for entertaining. Right? As if everyone entertains. So I guess there are people out there that just throw endless dinner parties for some reason, but it's not me. But if you do, the gospel says you can't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. And for me, that would be, well, there's no point in throwing one anymore which, you know me, would be perfectly fine anyway. But, but if you are going to throw one, the gospel text says, you have to invite a different group of people. Because that first group of people, they'll reciprocate, right? They'll invite you to their dinner party when they have one. But instead, what you need to do is you need to invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, Right? It's maybe back to those strangers or something like that. You have to invite people who cannot reciprocate. You have to invite people who cannot repay you by having you to their dinner party. I mean, how is that not a great example of what it looks like to love both those who are closest to us and to love those who are strangers to us? So again, maybe that's a tangible way to think about, well, how do I love the stranger? Well, invite them to your, to your dinner party. Right? Invite them into your life, into your space. Not just those you like, those who are close to you, but those who are strangers. The third commandment here, which is also the third verse, is to remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. So this remembering, if you will, is some sort of identification with those who are in prison, right? So remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. Remember the mistreated because you are too are in the body. So this is no mere intellectual act, but it's somehow a spiritual embodiment of their condition. And I have to admit, as I was thinking about this this week, I realized that in our prayers of the people, we pray for a few people who are incarcerated. But I've never stopped to think about what is their day-to-day existence like? Have I really identified with them? When I pray for them, am I thinking about the difficulty of their circumstances day in and day out? And so I had a moment this week to try to think, what would that be like? And I say this in all honesty, not just as a, as a joke, but I think the closest I've ever been to being in prison was boot camp. Because I couldn't go anywhere when I wanted to. I couldn't do what I wanted to do. I was told when I was going to get up. I was told when I was going to go to bed. I was told what I was going to wear. I was told what I was going to do, right? I mean, it's, that, I think, might be approaching what it's like for those who are incarcerated or those who are not incarcerated but being mistreated. And so this seems to be an extension of that loving the stranger, right? Identifying with those 
who are in prison identifying with those who are being mistreated. And because Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, comes later in the history of the church, probably the point here is there are Christians who have been arrested for their faith. There are Christians who are being mistreated. We know that from back in chapter 11 because we're told about the Christians who lived in caves and holes and out among the rocky places, right? So the point is, is we need to not just think about those people and say, oh, it must be hard for them, but somehow to identify with them. So we love those who are close to us. We love the stranger. We remember, that's the text, remember those who are in prison and those who are mistreated. Fourthly, Hold marriage in honor, verse 4, not by, def- by not defiling the marriage bed, for God will judge both the fornicator and the adulterer. So I'm not necessarily claiming to understand the exact, you know, love those close to you, love the stranger, remember those who are in prison and mistreated, hold the marriage bed in honor. I'm not claiming there's a necessary connection between these that gets us to this marriage bed thing. But here it appears that there is, in the mind of the writer, a direct connection between individual sexual morality and the health of the faith community. That it would be wrong to think that kind of what happens, if you will, behind closed doors doesn't affect other people. Now, it's true in the 21st century, our lives are probably more walled off than they've ever been at any point in history. I mean, literally walled off, right? Like, our houses may be built close together, but there's my wall and their wall. So there's at least two walls keeping us out of each other's business, ideally, right? And so there is this sense that, like, kind of I maybe can do what I want in my private space, and it doesn't have ramifications on others, except I think the author to the Hebrews is saying, no, that's not true. Now, of course, in the first century, there there may have been walls, but they weren't like our walls. They they weren't quite uh, invested in the amount of privacy that we have. But again, there's this connection that for those who fornicate, the unmarried, who are sexually immoral, but also the adulterers, those who are married and sexually immoral, has consequences in the community. So therefore, we need to hold marriage in honor by not defiling the marriage bed. So again, how we've gotten from loving others to remember those in prison to and uh, honoring the marriage bed, I, I don't claim to know much about that, except this is one of the six things that the author of the Hebrews decided to end the epistle with. So we must take it seriously. Fifth, we need to be content with what we have, and we need to keep our lives free from the love of money. Now, to be honest, not that the other ones were easy, but I find this one to be particularly difficult, mostly because... The Bible never really tells me when I have enough. I mean, it would be nice if we had some sort of built-in enoughometer, right? That like all of a sudden we'd kind of hit this place where a little alarm would go off and say, that's enough, stop, right? Or I don't know exactly, it's hard to always know when we're loving money versus just being good stewards of money. So I trust my investment guy to be giving me good advice about what I need in my retirement. So in that sense, I'm not hoarding or loving money in a sinful way. But again, it's, it's a slippery slope. It's a thin line. I don't, I don't know that. But nonetheless, be content with what we have and keep your life free from the love of money. Why? Well, two reasons, both reasons the author gives from the Old Testament. First, the author of the Hebrews quotes from Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, when he says this, quote, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
the content there of Deuteronomy 31 is that we have all that we need in and from God, and he will not forsake us. Why can you not fret about loving money? Why can you be content with what you have? Because God is not going to forsake you. He is going to keep taking care of you. Now, I want to go into this with my eyes wide open and say there are people that don't have all that they need. There are people that live in poverty. There are people that have real needs in their life that are not being met. But again, I don't think that's because God is unable to meet those needs. He will not forsake us. But because God gives us all that we need and all good things come from him, and he's not going to forsake us, then it should allow us to relax and not to fret about how much do I have? How much money do I have? But secondly, the author also quotes from Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, the answer is nothing, ultimately, because God's character is to steadfastly be good to his people. So not only will God not forsake us, but it's his character to be good to his people. So in other words, I don't need to fret about uh, what I have, nor do I need to be free. I need to be free from the love of money. Why? Because of who God is. God will take care of me, and it's in His power and His nature to do so. Now, I did something that's worthy of marking down on a calendar yesterday. I got rid of some books. Now, because I need to signal my virtue, I got rid of books. But it was only to make room for more books. To be honest with you, so. Uh, I needed more linear shelf space, so I got rid of a few books so that I can make room for new books. But if you know me, you know I like books, and I have a lot of them. I got a beautiful book this week, published in 1692, absolutely gorgeous book. Come over sometime, I'll show you. But, um, but books are a thing that I have, and there is this sense where Christine always says, uh, I, I don't really care what you do with our money, like in the sense of buying books, but she goes, I mean... At some point, there's going to be nowhere to put them, right? That's her way of saying there, there's just not going to be any room, right? Shouldn't you think about that? Shouldn't you slow down or something like that? Um, yeah, the answer, of course, is yes, I get all that. But I mean, the, the point is, is like, I actually wish maybe there was some sort of a meter that would tell me that's enough, Greg. Like, you've, you've bought enough books, right? You have, you have enough to, to read and to do now, um, but we don't have that, so we have to wrestle with that individually. But what, again, the text is telling us is for each one of us, we need to decide what our contentment entails. And we need to be free from the love of money. So again, love those who are close to us. Love the stranger. Remember those who are in prison and mistreated. Hold marriage in honor. Be content with what we have. Be free from the love of money. And then finally, the sixth thing, remember those who have come before us who have spoken the words of God and set an example by their way of life. Now, the author to the Hebrews cares about those who have come before us. That's chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, right? By faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Sarah did this. By faith, by faith, by faith. It sets the example. And I think maybe what the author is getting at, look, if you find these five things difficult, right, and you think, how could I ever do that? Look to the example of those who've gone before you. Because they set an example by their way of life. And again, what a great reason for us as Anglicans to observe the liturgical year, to lean into the liturgical year. Not just in the sense of what color 
are we going to wear? Is the priest going to wear this Sunday? But no, observing saints' days. Why? Because if you pay attention to saints' days, if you look at the collects for a feast day, we are not praying to those men and women. We are praying to God that we will follow their good example. In other words, we're doing the very thing that verse 7 of Hebrews 13 encourages us to do, to remember those who have come before us because they've set an example for us by their way of life, that this is something that we are to emulate in them. And so six things that we can do, six tangible actions that we as people of faith can and should be doing. And again, not because we pull up the proverbial bootstraps and make it happen, but because God, according to chapter 12, God gives us the grace necessary to grow our faith, and then our faith works itself out in these actions, loving others, loving strangers, remembering those who are mistreated and in prison, holding the marriage bed in honor, being content with what we have and free from the love of money, and remembering those who have come before us whose way of life set an example to us. So let me conclude with the words of the author to the Hebrews. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Why? For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. See, at the end of the day, these six things are not just so that we can show others that we're people of faith, but they give glory to God and they demonstrate to God actions that are pleasing to him. Because at the end of the day, this is always about God, not about us. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.